Hello, and welcome to another episode on the Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series on sanctions law. My name is Kili Chiyokengu. I'm an associate in the disputes practice group in the New York office. I am joined by my colleagues, Jonathan Cross. He's a partner in the disputes practice group also in the New York office. I'm also joined by Dr. Marius Buva. He's a partner in the German Dusseldorf office, and he leads our German regulatory practice. And last but not least, I'm joined by Susanna Kogman. She's a partner in the corporate crime and investigations practice in our London office. Thank you all so much for being here with us today. Today, we'll be discussing the latest developments in the fast-changing world of sanctions law. In particular, we'll be taking a deep dive into the Biden administration's efforts to seize the assets of Russian oligarchs. So let's begin with um, Jonathan. Can you tell us about the White House's recent proposal? Well, I think there have really been two tracks here, and, and I'll take them in order. First, the administration has been using existing legal authorities to seek the confiscation of certain assets of sanctioned Russian companies and individuals. And second, they have made proposals that Congress provide new authorities for seizure of assets of sanctioned individuals. And those proposals have been described in general terms, but the legislative text has not been released. So to start with what they've been doing in terms of current seizure efforts, there is a new Department of Justice task force known as Operation Klepto Capture, which has been given significant resourcing and staffing and tasked with identifying, freezing, and seizing assets of sanctioned Russian oligarchs. Operation Klepto Capture has borne some initial fruit uh, in the form of at least two seizures of super yachts. Uh, And the legal basis for those seizures is is, is quite interesting, and I'll talk about it briefly. Uh, In April, uh, the administration seized uh, a yacht, which was then in Spain, known as the Tango, And then in May, a yacht, which was then in Fiji, known as the Amadea. And the the basis for these seizures was a seizure warrant issued by a magistrate judge in Washington, D.C. And and that, that seizure warrant under U.S. law is the first step in a process whereby there's a seizure and then there can be a civil forfeiture action. And it's that civil forfeiture action which would result in actual title and ownership to the asset being transferred to the United States. So in both cases, the seizure warrant lays out a basis for seizing the asset because it is the proceeds of money laundering activity. And the common thread in both yacht seizures is the concept that After the owners of the yachts became designated as SDNs under U.S. sanctions law, there were continued U.S. dollar transactions to to pay expenses, upkeep, maintenance, and other activities related to the yachts. And those dollar transactions will have cleared typically via a U.S. correspondent bank, and the government's position is that those payments are payments to maintain an asset of a blocked person, and it's unlawful for a U.S. bank to clear dollars to to maintain a blocked person's assets, and consequently, that there's predicate criminal activity in the form of those financial transactions connected to the yachts, enabling them to be seized and potentially ultimately forfeited under under U.S. law. And so, 
the U.S. in each case got a U.S. Uh, seizure warrant, took that seizure warrant to the authorities in Spain and Fiji, and pursued uh, uh, local remedies to achieve uh, the seizure uh, of, of the property and its subsequent uh, transfer to the United States, which I believe in both cases has been accomplished. Uh, the related forfeiture proceedings, which would result in actual title transfer, are uh, pending. But those cases demonstrate that while it's not a crime to be placed on a U.S. sanctions list, persons who are placed on a sanctions list uh, have, a, uh, have an immediate exposure to money laundering claims being brought on the basis of any activity in the U.S. or involving U.S. dollars from that point forward. Uh, and that that uh, claim of a violation can lead to the the seizure and confiscation of assets as an immediate consequence. Uh, in one of the cases as well, there is an allegation that the ownership for the yacht was obscured through a complex web of shell ownership structures and offshore ownership interests. And consequently, that U.S. banks were misled regarding the yacht's true ownership and, and thereby induced not to file suspicious activity reports with the Treasury Department or otherwise perform AML functions connected to the payments. So that's a, really an illustration of how AML laws sit on top of sanctions laws and can create an immediate right under current law with no further legislation to seize assets of sanctioned persons. But note that the seizure depends on more than the fact that the person has been sanctioned and, and this is an asset of the person. There has to be unlawful activity connected to the asset in order to justify um, seizure and forfeiture under U.S. law. And so in both cases, a real case has to be alleged regarding what the underlying violations of law are. And that's different from the mechanism needed to designate someone under U.S. sanctions, which is essentially an administrative process. Uh, where uh, the Treasury Department has very broad discretion to make those designations. So that's the current picture in terms of, of asset seizure efforts. Jonathan, can you tell us about recent legislative proposals? So in parallel to these efforts under existing law, the Biden administration has released a fact sheet and a general description of a proposed legislative approach which would enable assets of, uh, of certain sanctioned Russian companies and individuals to be uh, confiscated and for the proceeds to be made available uh, to Ukraine uh, as compensation for some of the, the impact of, of the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, the, the legislative text of this proposal has not uh, been released, but uh, the administration's description indicates that it's likely to have relatively broad scope. Uh, it seems that it will be a new species of the same type of forfeiture of assets on the basis of them being connected to criminal activity, which has been the basis for the yacht seizures we've been discussing. But this would be uh, legislation specific uh, to, to Russia sanctions, which uh, broadens the legal basis for seizure, likely beyond money laundering activity, to include things like corrupt activity within Russia, uh, corrupt privatization of assets, various species of um, of uh, uh, anti-bribery and corruption uh, con uh, violative conduct. So it would be a new approach and a new specific set of asset seizure triggers 
for the Russia sanctions program uh, tied to activity going beyond money laundering. Um, there's been a, a fair amount of controversy within the administration reportedly about the details of, of, of this proposal, and that may account for why it has not been forwarded to Congress yet. Um, another element expected to be addressed in the proposal would involve uh, potential confiscation of Russian sovereign assets, and that's a somewhat different set of issues relating to, among other things, Russian uh, central bank assets and other assets of Russian state entities. Um, and there are, I, I think, some some concerns going beyond black letter U.S. law there in terms of the impact on the U.S.'s reputation as a safe haven for assets and so forth. So there seems to be ongoing debate within the administration about the details of what should be a forthcoming legislative proposal to broaden seizure authority. But pending that, there are there are uh, very aggressive ongoing efforts being undertaken by the Justice Department to seize assets under current law. So I know the um, proposal allows the U.S. to not only seize assets, but to also liquidate them. Do you want to talk to us more about that? Is that something that's been done before? Yes, and, and, and by liquidating, we would be referring typically to forfeiture. So the first stage is a stage at which the asset is seized, uh, uh, meaning it is, uh, if it's a physical asset, physically taken into the custody of the United States. But title doesn't transfer at that point. Seizure is pending forfeiture. Forfeiture is the stage at which title to the asset transfers to the United States. And to forfeit the asset, you need to make a case that the asset is the proceeds of specified unlawful activity under the anti-money laundering statute, if that's the basis for the forfeiture. Um, and so the liquidation process you're describing would be a potential process following forfeiture, whereby having taken ownership of the asset, the U.S. government may choose to sell it and apply the proceeds for various purposes, including um, uh, compensating victims or possibly compensating Ukraine. That's really interesting, Jonathan. So what legal authorities could the U.S. possibly lean on in order to achieve its objectives here? Well, I, I think we've discussed them. Under current law, uh, anti-money laundering provisions can have a very broad effect, uh, which is the basis for the current activity. Um, and then, of course, there are proposals to broaden the bases, and we'll have to wait to see what the details are of those proposals. How is IEPA um, implicated here, if at all? IEPA is the foundational piece of U.S. sanctions uh, law, uh, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, and it, it plays a very major role because in, in, in the yacht seizures I've described, the underlying uh, basis for the, um, the money laundering allegation is the claim that there are proceeds of unlawful activity, and the activity is, is unlawful because it, it is alleged to violate IEPA, and that's because it involves efforts to maintain assets of persons who have been sanctioned by the United States, and IEPA prohibits U.S. persons from processing payments to maintain those assets. Fascinating. Wow, thank you so much for that. Let's bring in our friends from the U.K. and the E.U. Marius, can you tell us about what's going on in the E.U.? I know, for example, German authorities were recently in the news for confiscating the property of Russian citizens. Can you give us a little background on this? Yes, I would like to do so. So at the beginning of May this year, Bavarian authorities detected um, in the context of an EU sanctions list check, a match with a Russian national 
connection with his participation in a real estate um, investment, namely three apartments in Munich. The competent law enforcement authorities immediately commenced investigations on this initial suspicion of criminal act. And on the 14th of June, the apartments in Munich, as well as the correlating bank account on which the rent payments um, are received, were confiscated. This is, I think, worth mentioning for two reasons. It is as far as, as one can say, um, the first confiscation beyond asset freezing in Germany in the context of um, the Russian sanctions. And further, it, it relates to, well, non-spectacular apartments with a monthly rent income of approximately 3,500 euros. So no castle, no private jet, and other than, than what we just learned from Jonathan, even no, no yacht. It's just plain apartments in Munich. Um, also, under a legal perspective, it's quite interesting because the authorities did that without any existing case law and any existing precedents. And as you may imagine, it's not undisputed if this is to be considered as a lawful action or not under German law. I don't want to bore you with too much detail, but maybe just a quick outline on, on the regulatory background. According to German law, objects to which a criminal offense is related can be confiscated. And this is especially true in case um, of a breach of EU sanctions. In the case at hand, the one of the owners of the apartments is a member of the Duma, a designated person, and the other person is his wife. And under EU and German sanctions law, no funds or economic resources shall be made directly or indirectly available to a designated person and his or her close relative, which would be the case here. So what is the suspected breach of law? According to the German Bavarian authorities, both individuals continued to generate income from renting out the apartments in violation of sanction law, even after the sanction imposed on the husband. And therefore, the authorities say that both are suspected of criminal violations of German sanctions law by generating income after becoming a designated person. And because this is all connected to the apartments, they argue that the apartments are so close related to the breach of sanctions that the apartments can be confiscated together with the, with the um, banking account where the money and the rent is received. The tenants may continue to remain in the apartment. However, due to the seizure, they are no longer permitted to make the rent payments to the defendants. Instead, they have to pay to a deposit um, with a Munich local court. Um, it is currently unclear if this will be subject to court proceedings. Therefore, it, the, the entire process is too new. But in case it must be decided by, by the court, if the apartments are really to be considered as objects related to a sanctioned breach. Because you must know that the respective stipulations in German law are typically referred to, well, let's let's say money 
deriving from money laundry actions or objects which are illegally exported or, or laptops used to conduct a crime. But if an apartment in, in the constellation like that is, is so close connected to the sanctions brief, is at least not undisputed and, and is a very interesting question. And let's see if a court will kick in, how it will decide. Wow, that's really interesting. And what's going on in the UK? Um, Susanna, can you outline for us any recent changes in UK law related to sanctions enforcement? Uh, yes, coincidentally, I can. So um, our changes are not in the confiscation, as uh, Marius and Jonathan have just spoken about, but in relation to um, uh, enforcement for breaches. Uh, so in particular, there are two significant changes that were brought into force on the 15th of June, uh, both as a result of the Economic Crime Act, which was uh, pushed through Parliament very quickly in response to the Russian invasion. Um, and the first change is to um, the basis on which uh, penalties can be imposed for breach of sanctions, and, and we're moving to a strict liability standard. So the pre-existing position was that if there was a breach of sanctions, um, the uh, person who had violated sanctions could either be criminally prosecuted or they could have a civil monetary penalty imposed on them. But in either case, the relevant test that the authorities would need to establish to the relevant standard of proof would be that they had knowledge or reasonable grounds to suspect, um, for example, that they were dealing with a designated person. Uh, so uh, we're going to keep that same standard for criminal prosecution, but for the imposition of civil penalties by OFSI, which is our version of uh, OFAC, uh, we're moving to a strict liability standard. So that is clearly a, a significant uh, shift in terms of risk exposure to companies uh, in the event of, of a breach. Um, and then the second change, which I think is actually um, also really interesting, is a new name and shame power, which obviously are getting. So this uh, applies where they have concluded that there's a breach uh, but they've decided that they're not going to impose a monetary penalty. They may nonetheless uh, publish a notice on their website um, identifying the uh, company concerned and the nature of the conduct. And the idea is that that will uh, be a sort of lesson for others, uh, that it will promote better compliance. Not entirely clear to me why you need to name the company concerned in order to send that message, uh, but that is the uh, mechanism which has been uh, introduced uh, and um, therefore there's clearly a sort of reputational risk associated with that even where no penalty uh, is imposed. So, so both of those provisions are now in force, uh, but they apply um, only sort of prospectively to breaches from the 15th of June. So um, historic breaches will continue to be dealt with under the pre-existing regime. Thank you for that. Um, curious to know if the OFSI is the only agency that companies need to worry about. Uh, no, uh, it's a good question. So in terms of uh, penalties for breach of financial sanctions, yes, it's, it's OFSI. Um, and in respect of trade sanctions, um, HMRC has a, a remit in certain cases. But actually, the other agency that many of our clients are concerned about because they're financial institutions um, is the FCA, which is the Financial Services Conduct Regulator. 
And look, it's been, uh, I think, over 10 years since the FCA or FSA, as it was, has imposed a freestanding penalty for uh, sanction systems controls failures. So in that case, uh, failure to appropriately sanction screen. Uh, but uh, they uh, there have been a number of AML enforcement actions which have had a sanction systems and controls element. Uh, and it's also part of the FCA supervisory work, of course. Um, so what the FCA would be would be looking at is not uh, per se whether you breach sanctions or not, but whether you have, uh, as a regulated firm, appropriate controls to comply with sanctions. Um, and we are anticipating a, a possible uptick of um, interest in that area. It has never really gone away, uh, but as I say, hasn't been a really strong feature of recent enforcement cases. Uh, but there's a certain amount of political interest in this area. The um, Treasury Select Committee and in Parliament recently wrote to the FCA to say, you know, what are you doing uh, about ensuring firms comply with sanctions? Uh, what are you doing specifically in relation to Russia? Uh, the FCA has published a couple of um, uh, notices on their website, including one encouraging regulated firms to report other regulated firms that they think are involved in sanctions circumvention. Um, so I see that as a area of, you know, further uh, focus um, and potentially uh, enforcement risk in the event that uh, firms don't have things uh, uh, sort of appropriately shipshape. Um, and of course, given the speed with which the sanctions have been introduced, which we are all well aware of, it's been, a, I think, a bundle for everyone to try and um, ensure that their systems and controls can respond appropriately to these new waves of, of sanctions. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. You all have done a fantastic job with sort of laying the land for us, and you've also all touched on, you know, the practical effects of sanctions and seizures, but I want to explore that a little bit more. So let's go back to Jonathan. Can you talk to us about what your thinking is in terms of how the seizures will, will take effect and whether um, this is the most practical way to um, provide aid to the Ukrainian citizens? Well, there's two questions in there. How, how will seizures take effect? I think the important thing to keep in mind is that these are real legal cases. They are not broad sweeping administrative determinations or decisions. So uh, the seizures need to be, and I expect will be, based on Specific facts and evidence developed by the government, which brings uh, you know a warrant uh, application and, and and commences a case and has to uh, justify its actions at, at various points and levels before a judge. Um, that means, however, that as a as a mechanism for getting money to Ukraine in a timely way, I'd be very surprised if this were particularly effective. Uh, it, it, it's not usually going to be possible to make and prove these cases if there's any kind of significant opposition such that they result in the uh, very short-term availability of significant money which can be used to assist Ukraine. That's not to say it shouldn't necessarily be done, but I think the, the idea that it's going to be a strategy for helping Ukraine in the short term is, uh, is uh, really uh, symbolism and not substance. Yeah, and 
Marius, you, you sort of told us about how this is a new way of applying the law. Do you see this as being, you know, the most practical way to apply it in Germany or elsewhere in Europe? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, what, what we're currently seeing in Germany is that they are trying to um, to use the existing rules, um, which have not been made, as I, as I said earlier, to, um, to, for example, to confiscate an apartment um, in, in the context I, I, I lined out. Um, but they, they try to to bring this to the to, to make it fit. And I'm not quite sure if this will be will be the end of the the entire discussion. What we're currently seeing is that the European Commission is proposing new measures on uh, sanctions enforcement. And uh, just just two weeks ago, end of May, the EU Commission proposed to add um, the violation of EU sanctions to the list of what they call the EU crimes. And they also proposed to implement new enforcement rules European-wide on asset recovery and confiscation. And if you want to learn more about that, I, I'm happy to give a very brief outline. Please. So, okay. I mean, what is an EU crime? Um, it, it sounds strange because the European um, Union has no power to in, in criminal law per se, but the European Treaty includes one article, it's Article 83, according to which the European Parliament and, and the Council may establish four specifically defined categories of, of criminal acts, a minimum rules concerning the definition of these crimes, of um, the, the qualification under national law and the sanctions to be implemented. And there is a positive list um, in, in which categories the European um, Communion, uh, Union is entitled to do so, namely categories like terrorism, trafficking in, in human beings, um, Ill illegit drug trafficking, money laundering, stuff like that. The breach of EU sanctions is currently not in that list. However, the European uh, Treaty gives the power to, to open the list, to amend it, and that's uh, the current proposal of the European Council. So they can they can add the breach of European sanctions if they do this in concert with the European Parliament. And if the breach of EU sanctions fulfills the criteria of Article 83, which everybody is of the opinion that this will be the case. What is the advantage of being an EU crime? Well, it it gives and cross it has an immediate cross border effect because the law enforcement authorities then all well play at the same minimum field. They have the same instruments in investigation and prosecution and punishing. And this will help to to make it easier to um, to follow on crimes, to investigating crimes cross border. You must know in this context that currently the breach of new sanctions follow a totally different approach from member state to member state. So you see, for example, criminal offenses, you also see only administrative offenses, and each of them has its own regulatory enforcement regime. And this could be um, kind of um, kind of um, unified by putting the sanctions breach on the EU crimes list. 
maybe one one very brief word on the other proposal which has been published in parallel so the commission is putting forward uh, this proposal for a directive on asset recovery and confiscation the core objective is well to ensure that crime does not pay by depriving criminals of their ill-gotten gains and limiting their capacity to commit further crimes and um, this proposal includes some main rules and just to name three of them um, it is proposed to extend the mandate of the asset recovery offices to swiftly trace and identify assets of individuals and entities subject to sanctions especially cross-border the member states then in correspondence with the proposal to the eu crime list um, the possibilities to confiscate assets shall be expanded to a wider set of crimes. And finally, um, it is proposed to establish in each member state a so-called asset management office to ensure that frozen property does not lose its value and it shall be enabled this office to, to sell the frozen assets um, if it can otherwise well, it, it's too costly to to maintain or can easily um, depreciate um, the cost. So that's the current proposal, and we'll see what what the member states and and the European Parliament will do by that. Wow, it really seems to be changing on a daily basis almost. Susanna, you've already done a great job with laying out sort of the practical effects in the UK. I was hoping you could expand a little bit more on the strict liability standard. You had explained a little earlier that we're now moving towards a more a strict liability standard. So could you please um, tell us your thoughts on whether that is the most practical way to approach the issues that we're facing in the world now? I mean, it's interesting. I think there's a, a lot of concern in the UK as to how uh, that standard will be applied in practice. So given obviously you could take on you know, almost any case, which cases will they select and enforce? And they've um, reissued their penalties guidance. And in that, they've said that they, you know, they will take into account what the company knew or had reasonable grounds to suspect. So that's not irrelevant. Um, it will feed into what cases they pursue and potentially penalty. Um, and they've also emphasised that they will seek to be reasonable and proportionate um, in terms of what cases lead to the imposition of a monetary penalty. So it is possible um, that we won't see a very significant change from the current position, but you know, in theory, they've still got a lot of scope um, to pursue cases which couldn't be pursued at the moment and where there's you know, a good faith error or indeed uh, even potentially where a company couldn't have known that it was uh, in violation of sanctions. So I hate to say it's kind of watch this space, but it is slightly watch this space at the moment because this has been introduced so recently um, and it will take a while for cases to work through. And I think what companies will be looking for is to try and get a feel for what sort of cases uh, you know, do and don't now lead to an enforcement outcome. I think in the interim, again, in terms of the what is the practical impact sort of question, um, there's a separate issue as to what impact this has on companies' conduct and in particular whether they'll um, be even more risk-averse uh, than they were at the moment in relation to sanctions issues. So is there a kind of de-risking 
um, consequence of all of this where companies feel they can't be sure of the sanctions position, not least given the current complexity um, and given the increased enforcement profile, um, they will uh, perhaps not undertake activities which previously they, they might have been willing to do so. Um, and that, I suppose, could be seen as a, a good or bad thing, but I think it's probably a, a, a negative. So I think companies are, are looking for greater clarity on what um, type of compliance policies and procedures would um, give them a level of comfort that if they have those policies and procedures and they follow them in good faith, um, there's not going to be an enforcement outcome, even if something inadvertently goes wrong. And until we have that clarity, either in guidance or through a kind of book of, of, of cases which eventually come through, uh, we're going to be in this area where there's significant uncertainty and, as I say, a, a possibility of slightly unhelpful um, de-risking behaviour, I think. I think every one of you has definitely taught me something in this conversation. It's been really interesting. It's great to have spoken to people who are experts in, in this field. So thank you for sharing your thoughts. I've definitely come away with a number of new insights in this space. And I think, Susanna, you hit it on the head when you said watch this space because things definitely are developing and they're developing quickly. I want to give you all an opportunity to share any last words with our audience before we close up. Anyone is uh, welcome to speak. Yes, you know, I think one takeaway would be from the yacht seizure cases I was discussing that efforts by newly sanctioned persons to maintain their assets involving in any way the U.S. or the U.S. financial system will convert what would otherwise be a government right to freeze assets into a seizure and, and confiscation case. And so I think I think one common thread that we see is that the responses of sanctioned persons to their designation can make their legal position worse rather than better. I would add that, uh, again, without wishing to say watch this space, um, it will be really interesting to see what the UK does, not in the enforcement area I've been talking about, but in parallel areas to what Jonathan and Marius have been discussing. So we, we haven't talked about it because there's less to talk about yet that's in the public domain. But certainly the, you know, the National Crime Agency and other agencies are looking at um, you know, the, the crossover between sanctions and money laundering um, and what enforcement and confiscation activity might be appropriate. Um, so I, I, th I think there will be more to come in the UK and in this area also. Well, it's, it's hard to find uh, words of wisdom if you're number three in this line, but maybe I can add um, a thank, thank you for having me on this podcast, because I think it's very, very important to keep everybody and, and ourselves up to date. I mean, the sanctions law is one of the fastest developing laws I'm aware of in my legal professional career over the last 20 years. And I think we are all obliged to, to keep us uh, all together up to date. And um, I think Podcasts like these are very important to being part of that. That is all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to this episode on Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on sanctions law. If you liked what you heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes and hit the subscribe button. You will have great new guests and discussions on each new episode that you won't want to miss. 
As a reminder, this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. If you would like to learn more about sanctions law or have any other questions, please feel free to reach out to our Herbert Smith panelists, Jonathan Cross, Marius Buva, and Susanna Cogman. Thank you once again. Speak soon.